to get us back on track with this wonderful little letter of 1 Peter. He's talking about true grace and he's talking about the way the grace of God, it has redeemed us. It's not just saved us or washed away our sins. It has redeemed us. It set us free. The chains are gone. We're free as we've looked about to worship, to live for the glory of God, to live with a passion for holiness, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to love him with all the passion that he puts in our hearts, to respond to people in our lives, authority and other people. And we're now in a passage where he's going to talk about how this grace and how this redemption works in a biblical view of marriage. That's where we're up to. We're First Peter chapter 3. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. You're going to have to fasten up your seatbelts and hold on there. We're going to go some places here. And in fact, this particular verse is one that's been in the headlines. The ABC have been promoting this and other Scriptures like this in a way to undermine a biblical view of marriage. One of the pastors said to me upon returning, they said, oh, are you still continue, continuing the, the first Peter series? It's either exceptionally good or exceptionally bad timing to be reading a verse like this. We'll see which one as we launch in together. First Peter chapter 3, likewise. Remembering it's a connection verse. He's talked about so many things. How grace redeems us, how it affects our worship, our lifestyles, the way we treat people in authority, and here in the same way, it impacts our marriages. And I should say as well, if you're not married, don't worry, don't switch off. There will be something in this message and next week, I believe, that is applicable for each and every person in this room. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's a verse that's been in headlines. Hang in there. We're coming back there. Let's read it in context. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Who would like to have a go of preaching on that verse? Any takers? Let's move on. It continues, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We get this glimpse here already. It's not just a healthy marriage that it's at stake. It's the prayers. It's the, the fruit of the Christian life. And more importantly, as Peter has talked about, it is the very glory of God that's on display in our marriages. So where on earth do we go with a passage like this, particularly in light of some of the headlines over the last few weeks? Let me talk about them for a moment. And let me talk about two places that I believe are so important for us to go. How many have no idea what I'm talking about in terms of headlines and this particular passage and our beloved friends over at the ABC? A few of us. Well, the ABC over the last few weeks, and I don't want to mention too much about it, but just so you know the context, they have released a number of articles concerning what they call an investigation, an ongoing investigation into domestic violence and religion. 
one of these controversial articles had this particular headline, Submit to your husbands, inverted commas, Women Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. That was the title. The subtitle, and this is what they based that very controversial headline upon, was this particular statement, which has since been proven false, at best misleading, at worst false. But their subtitle headline was this. Research shows that the men most likely to abuse their wives are evangelical Christians who attend church sporadically. This really was the heart of their emphasis and their undermining and their attack, as they've done many times, on a biblical view of marriage. Now, someone in the early service pointed out that 7.30 Report has since run. They haven't apologized, but they've certainly had an open discussion. The reality was this statistic came from a study in the US and it was taken out of context. And that study, as well as every other study that's been conducted, there hasn't been one in Australia, there was one in New Zealand, actually proves the exact opposite. That the more men attend church, the less likely they are to be involved and perpetrators of domestic violence. Now, any domestic violence is bad. I'm not trying to justify that. But that at least makes sense because I don't know how any Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing Christian could be any way involved in something that is abhorrent in the sight of God. But that didn't stop the ABC, as they often do, in their usual vein, attacking biblical marriage. On the same time, you may probably haven't seen this article because it was released in the midst of a lot of controversy about their other study, but there was one, an article this week, I'll mention just the title and some brief details, on the other side of the coin, and it was this. This article was entitled, An Extraordinary Ordinary Modern Family. In the story that they're referring to detailed a mum and a baby and a transgender dad. This couple here, Lucky and Emma Price, Lucky was actually born a girl, little Eliza, who always struggled with issues, and then in her early 30s decided to become a man, so she began the process. She even had surgery, partial surgery, which enabled her under the laws of Australia then to change her birth certificate to be a man, and then that allowed this couple to marry. They've since gone on, even though she had partial surgery, she wanted to have a baby, they had a baby and have recently celebrated the birth of a baby boy. And this, of course, the ABC's eyes is held up as the epitome of a modern, wonderful family. And I should just say, I don't read that story with any sense of smirk or judgment or ridicule or anger, except for maybe the way that sin has just so tarnished and infiltrated our society. You know, when I read that article, and this is honestly before the Lord, I felt this deep, compassion. I felt this deep compassion, particularly for this little girl. I've got four beautiful girls, and to think that a little girl could so struggle with who she is that she'd need to remove body parts and change a birth certificate to father or mother or child, I just think it's such an indication of not just hers, but our lostness, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from relationship with our Heavenly Father, Father who calls us His beloved sons and daughters. So I want to go into those two particular scenarios this week. I mention them for this reason. They're just indicative of what the press 
And not just the minority press, but the mainstream press continually puts before us. And it's simply this. Traditional marriage is out the door. It's out the door. At best, it's outdated. At worst, it's abusive. It's repressive. It's a danger to society. Out with the old, in with the new. What's the new? Well, we don't really know, but it's anything but the old. That's what it is. That is the message that we are presented with. And so I want to, before we delve into this particular passage of Scripture, I think it's worth just taking a step back. I want to ask two questions. The first question is simply this. Is the biblical definition of marriage important? Is this still important? Is this of value? Is it outdated? Is it irrelevant? The conclusion, just in case you're wondering, that I'm hoping that all of us will arrive at is not only is it something to be believed in, it's something to be celebrated. It is God's wonderful plan and intention. It reflects his nature more than anything else in creation and his love for us. The second thing is, well, if that indeed is the case, if biblical marriage is important, then how does it work? How do we make it work? What is the key to make a biblical marriage something that testifies to the glory of God, that witnesses to his grace, his majesty, that proclaims his purpose to a world that is in desperate need of discovering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's our task next week from the passage. You can begin praying now. See who we get to then. But for this morning, I want us to ask that question. Is marriage important? Is it important? If so, why? And outside of that, how then do we stand in a world that is so desiring to reinvent it, to readapt it, to change what for centuries has been a biblical version of marriage? So if you've got your Bible, come with me. We're going to go right back to the beginning. You don't need to look far in the Scriptures to see God's intention for marriage We're going to read this account. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going. And if you read, of course, the account of creation, you'll see we pick up the story when everything was made and God had created man and woman. And he puts this pronouncement, which really is the foundation for all, everything else that the Bible teaches about marriage, stems from God's original intention. Male and female, he created them. That's a verse that I never thought would come into question. But today is very much in question. Verse 24, chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. The Lord says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here we have it. Really simple. Man and female, he created them. The two becoming one. It's this incredible picture of God's intention, I believe, for mankind. And you see, one common view, one thing you hear often in the press is that, well, really the Bible's not clear on the heart of marriage. In fact, a particular theological lecturer in the wake of some of Margaret Court's comments a few months ago, Robin Whitaker was her name, she made this observation, reading the Bible to determine the shape of marriage is not an easy task. Now, I am the first to admit that this particular theological professor has more numbers and letters and everything next to her name than I probably ever will. But I beg to differ. I think that this is incredibly simple. 
We can complicate it. We can. In fact, she goes on, and this is, this is the logic of her argument. She says, well, the Bible is an ancient collection of 66 books written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, spanning thousands of years of human history, much of the Bible being written two and a half thousand years ago when family life was very different. Now, that's true. We see lots of examples of, of family through the Bible, no doubt about that. And she goes on to cite examples like David and Solomon who had many wives. Now, that, true, that too is true. They had many wives and they got in much trouble. It wasn't for their good and it wasn't God's plan. One wife is more than sufficient. Did I say that wrong again? Is exactly sufficient. Is perfectly sufficient. That's what I'm looking for. It's perfectly sufficient. You see, rather than this different family expression throughout Scripture being somehow evidence against the biblical view, I would say it's absolutely 100% evidence for. Think about this. Yes, the Bible spans a large period of time through different family expression across cultures, generations, civilization, thousands of years. And yet God says from the very beginning, this is my intention. That was written into the covenant he made with Israel. That was confirmed by the apostles' teaching. Jesus himself quoted this verse. You see, here's the point. Never does it differ. Never does it waver. Never does it compromise. Never does it move or change to fit the current social agenda. Even though what was practiced was different from that. The word of God remained consistent. His plan and his purpose. But there's a second aspect of this, and we see it in this story in Genesis that I think is equally as important. So number one, it is, I believe, God's plan for humanity. This wonderful picture of marriage. One man, one woman coming together to become one flesh. But not only is it his plan, it is God's provision for our good. You see, you would, if you listen to the modern voices talking about marriage, you'd think the big biblical marriage was somehow oppressive and controlling and it was just dangerous to society. But we're going to read this account. And what we'll see is that you know, God didn't look at this scenario and situation and say, well, here's Adam, I see him. And Adam, he just looks like he's having way too much fun. What can I do? What can I do to really make him miserable? I know. I'm going to send him a wife. I'm going to make him marry one. I mean, it's totally the opposite of what happened. It's his provision for our good and for his glory. Let's look at this story and bear with me. I love this story. I can't help but just delving in a little bit. Follow along. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, The Lord said, it is not good. First time, everything else had been good. The wonder, the beauty of creation. He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper. Some translations say a helpmate, a companion, an equal fit for him. A perfect companion, a perfect other that would complement who he is. Interestingly, if you read the account, he doesn't then go and make this perfect companion. There's this whole scenario and it says all the animals were brought before Adam and he named them and certainly that's a part of the process. But there's something else here that's implied because it says at the, verse, at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So you think, what is going on here? Why didn't the Lord just make Adam and Eve at the same time? He's pronounced that it's not good and maybe, I don't know, I, I, maybe it was because Adam wasn't so sure. The Lord said it wasn't good and he said, well, I don't know, God, this is pretty good. There's no one here to tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. I'm in paradise. I mean, it doesn't sound too bad, does it? 
Maybe Adam wasn't so certain. I'm not sure. But for some reason, the Lord goes through this process. It says all the animals are brought before them. And yes, they're named. But yes, there's this process for Adam at least to see that there was nothing and no one suitable for him. So as, as people have said very humorously before, you know, there comes the hippo. He says, what do you want to call this? Well, let's call it the hippo. Well, what do you think? Is, would she be suitable? And then Adam says, well, I might need a bigger bed. I don't know. I mean, she's big, but she'd be warm in the winter. I don't know. Is, is she... She said, I mean, this, it's almost comical, this procession. Like, what is the Lord doing other than eventually he gets to the end and it's a statement of sadness saying, well, there is this, this. Everybody else has a perfect companion. They're male and female. I have nobody. I have nobody. So we read the next story and it says, as the story continues, and it says, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he was asleep, from his substance, not really a rib, it's more his substance, He created woman. Verse 22, it talks about the fact that he made the woman. Now, that word for made is different than the word where it talks about him making Adam. The word for making women is he fashioned. And literally, the intention here, fashioned, the verb picture is a sculpture carefully, deliberately shaping. So he made man, but he fashioned woman. And all the women say, amen. Yes, preach that one. And not only did he fashion carefully, intentionally, this woman to be the perfect companion to Adam. But it says, he brought her to the man. That word literally means presented her. He didn't just make her and put her next to Adam, and Adam woke up, and there she was. It says, literally, the Lord presented this woman to Adam. Now, I would love to have seen what that looked like. Was there a parade? Was there a celebration? I mean, you almost can see the, you know, the enthusiasm in the heart of God. He's put Adam to sleep, so he doesn't know what's going on. He wakes Adam up. He says, guess what? I've got a surprise. Guess what? Here it is. And then there's this unveiling of the woman. And his response is amazing. I mean, it it says in our English translations, it says, this at last. I mean, that's such a poor translation. There's an old joke that says, how did the the woman get her name from Adam? And it's because when Adam woke up, he said, whoa, man. Have you heard that one? Well, actually, that's pretty close to the original translation. The scholars say here, let me get it right. They say this, that this is in fact an expression of joyous astonishment. The very first words recorded in scripture that man ever spoke was, wow, yeah. I mean, it kind of says it all, doesn't it? I wonder if Adam later on is like, oh God, I didn't know you were going to put that in scripture, you know. Would have written her a nice poem. I would have got her a bunch of flowers. And But the point is this, he sees the woman and he's so overcome. This at last, wow. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, we've found one who is my perfect companion. And you see, it's in that context that verse 24 then comes. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife, mother, his they should join and be one. This is a good thing. It's not just God's plan, but it's his purpose for our good. It is a wonderful sanctity of marriage. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's not just something that we should abide by reluctantly compulsively, because it's something we should celebrate. What a wonderful gift it is that God saw fit to give us marriage. Someone say amen, please, please. We're going to look next week at how our marriages can be a lot more wonderful than they actually are, obviously, right at this moment. How can they get better? God's plan for marriage. Not only should we believe it, but we should celebrate it. 
You see, I, I've seen this. I want to give a couple of examples. We've only got a few minutes left, and then we'll try and somehow land this somewhere. But I've seen this reality in my own life. I remember that when my wife and I first got married, which is we've been married for 13 years, and we'd courted or seen each other intentionally for a few years prior to that. But I was in my early 20s, a year and a little bit into my first job working as an accountant and you know, with people of a similar age and stage of life. And I was so surprised. You know, I was excited, it led up to this event of proposing, and I was excited to come to work and tell everybody, hey, guess what? I got engaged. And so I did. I announced it, and I could not get over the response of people. This may be inaccurate, but I don't remember anybody who had anything positive to say. They were like, married? You've got to be kidding me. Why would you? How old are you? I said, I'm old enough. How old are you? Matt, why would you want to do this? such a big commitment? You're so young. You know, you want to tie yourself down. And then the conversation continued and someone was like, oh, but remember, he's a Christian. Oh, you're a, well, you have to do it then. I mean, you don't have a choice. You've got to just lock yourself in and, you know, life sentence. And really, are you serious? And then someone else said, oh, you know, he's a Christian. I bet they've actually, you know, never had sex together. And then they were like, you've never actually had sex with the girl you're going to marry? I said, absolutely not. I am saving it for marriage, not because I have to, but because I get to. What a wonderful plan of God it is. But I endured some ridicule, and most of it was in, in good, good nature, as in I was friends with these guys. But they did make a point from then on, particularly the guys. And they were you know, typical guys living in the world. They'd work hard, and then they'd party hard. And so they'd make a point Monday morning. They'd be like, you never guess what. Oh, you should have seen the party. You should have seen the women. You should hear what we were up to. It just, you wouldn't believe it. And so it was an ongoing joke to sort of ridicule me and have, have fun at my expense in that area. And I didn't mind it. I put up with all of that. But, you know, as things went on, I was in that particular workplace for three and a half years. And I saw just the broken relationships. I saw the fruit from that kind of lifestyle. In fact, one particular guy, his name was also Andrew, worked in the same workplace. And he, I mean, he was great at what he did, but man, when he partied, he partied hard. In fact, he regularly got so drunk that he could not remember anything that happened the week before. And he'd started a relationship with another girl in the office, which was, of course, taboo, but everyone did it anyway. It was one of those unwritten laws that no one actually abides by. But then he'd gone out, he'd had a massive bender one weekend, and he cheated on her. And of course, you can imagine the awkward conversations and situations. He claimed he couldn't even remember having done it, but there was photographic evidence, which I never saw, but I heard. Very awkward situation, but he was genuinely broken when that happened. And I, I talked to him a little bit after that event, and he said to me, Something along the lines of, I forget the exact words, but in his place of brokenness, he said, you know what, we've ridiculed you for so many years, but really all we want is what you've got. That really is. And I can guarantee you that 13 years of marriage and a relationship of, of, of honoring and sanctifying the marriage bed, of doing it God's way, I mean, there's more joy to be found in that than a lifetime outside the purpose and plan for God. Marriage is something to celebrate as single people. It's something to hang on for. It really is. It's God's intention. One man, one woman, the intimacy and the covering and the covenant of marriage. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'd like to say, of course, that you, know, you, you seek the Lord and your marriage will be perfect. That's not the case. I'm not trying to say that I have a perfect marriage. The Lord's had to do a little bit of work 
one of our lives in particular who remain nameless. And I'm not, not trying to say it's an A to Z and you will have, you know, it'll all, it'll all work out. I'm just trying to say that God's plan for biblical marriage works. And where there's brokenness, there's healing. There is for those who've experienced that and that's not your reality. God's plan for marriage is not something we should just believe and adhere to as we have to. That's what the word says. It's something we should celebrate. There's just one more place that I want to go before we bring this to a conclusion. As I said next week, I really want to delve into the passage. I want to look at a a redeemed and a grace-filled and a God-glorifying marriage and what that's all about. But I want to go one other area. It's a very topical issue, and it's an issue that is not easy to preach on, but I want to go there. There's no point in beating around the bush. I know this this is a minefield of an area, but I want to talk about what do we do as Christians with people who genuinely have same-sex attraction. Do we redefine marriage? Because there is. Let's be honest. There are people who struggle with that particular issue. What is a Christian response? Because you hear Christians saying, well, it's this, that, it's the other. My view is strongly this. God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman. And I don't believe, with all my heart, hear this, I don't believe that is unloving to say. I know that it's been said unlovingly more times than I could count. I know that. I acknowledge that. But I don't believe that it is unloving to say. I believe that it would be unloving for me not to say that. Not for me to uphold what God says. This is good. This is the sanctus of the glory of marriage. And anything out of that is not his intention. Be a little bit like being a doctor and seeing someone come to me and arms and limbs and infection everywhere. And I say, well, just have a couple of aspirins, walk it off. You'll be fine. I honestly believe the most loving thing that we can do as the people of God is to uphold God's desire and intention for marriage. Now, I'm sure some of you would say, well, that's easy for me to say because I've never struggled with that issue. And that's true. I haven't. But what I have seen is I have seen the transformative power in all areas of sexual issues of the glorious grace and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen that in my family. I have a cousin who was molested as a young boy by another man that led him into a life, a homosexual lifestyle. And he shares willingly, it's his story to tell, not mine, of the grace of God restoring him from that lifestyle. We've had someone here who came to us, was born a man, but came as a woman. And because of the love expressed, both from people around, but also encountering the love of Jesus. This man who came as a woman went back to being a man, and many of you would know who I'm talking about. But I want to share one story in this area, and these are stories that will never be pronounced in the news. They'll never be spoken upon in today's modern pop culture. But this is one person's story. There's a guy whose name is Matthew Aaron. He has a website. You can look this up maddiewalk.com, and his story is like thousands of others that you can find online of people who've been in this lifestyle, encountered the Lord Jesus, and been transformed as a result. I'll cut his, his testimony really short, but his story is this. He says, I remember as, as far back as I can remember, even as early as age six, I was attracted to other guys. through a whole series of events that led him living actively as a gay man until the age of 27. 
So then at 27, I submitted control of my life to Jesus Christ. I met him and he and he alone helped me walk away from homosexuality and the many facets of sexual brokenness that had a death grip on my life. He said, so many people have said to me, is it actually possible to stop being gay? I know many men and women who've turned away from sexual sin and I am living proof. This is not a message of exclusion or a message to spark debate. But if you are trapped in that lifestyle, there is hope, and the hope is Jesus Christ. He published this, and I just think this is worth us pondering. Weigh this in a blog that he wrote this past week. In the midst of all that's going on around us, in the world, in this particular area, hear his heart's cry. As I said, this is just this week on his blog he wrote these words. He said, I have a message so deep in my bones that if not released will take me to the grave. I celebrate 18 years away from the gay life this December. God helped me leave that life behind. He can help you do the same. God wanted me to leave that life behind. He didn't offer it as a gift upon my birth. He cursed it as sin at the fall of man. I refused to make a pact with the enemy regarding my sexuality. I decided to listen to the Holy Spirit when it came to my homosexual attractions and temptations. Church people and pastors, listen up. How long will you remain silent on this issue? How much longer will you refuse to preach freedom for homosexuals from the pulpit? I beg you to end your silence, not to resurrect condemnation for the gay community, but so that you can preach life to men like me who sit in your congregation alone and afraid. Remaining silent makes you liable for our lives as we struggle on endlessly. The world has made a brash, bold, overarching statement when it comes to sexual sin. When will you end your silence and allow life to flow again in the desert of our dysfunction? You know, I would say, what is our Christian response? I'd say anybody who struggles with any issue outside God's plan, God's glorious plan, God's wonderful plan for marriage is just a perfect candidate as I am and as all of you are of encountering the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I believe so strongly that we are called to stand against this oncoming tide, not with condemnation and judgment. We stand against it as Jesus did with a woman in adultery. He said, I'm not having that. Let him who is without sin. Instead, we stand, not hidden away, but with arms open wide. People full of love, but a love that will lead to life and a life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. I don't know what you do with that. But as we pray, as you close your eyes, I'd encourage you. I know that there'll be people in this room who disagree with me. You're very free to do that. In fact, I'd encourage you never to just believe something because I tell you, but I'd encourage you even more never to believe anything just because the world tells you. I would encourage you to search these things out. Read the Scripture. Allow the Holy Spirit to ignite within you a passion of not only what you believe, but why you believe it. And for the rest of us, who do hold to a biblical view of marriage. This is a time for us to stand, to stand and love, to love people with open, unashamed, unabandoned affection. There is no place 
for condemnation. For even Jesus, he came not to condemn the world, but he came to save it. And this is a moment where love truly can be the pathway to lead others to life. Let's love Jesus with all passion in our hearts. And let's, as an outflow of that, reach out and love those. I just think of those little girls, the little boys, who truly do not know who they are. Let's love them. Let's embrace them. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that the truth is that we are redeemed. Each and every one of us here, there is an opportunity for us to experience and encounter, encounter the redemption that comes from your blood. Lord, what a thought. Constantly I'm in awe and so thankful for your redemption in my life. That you save us. That you seek after us. That you don't come to condemn, but you come to love. That we might be saved through your incredible grace. That we might find our true identity as your sons and daughters. And Lord, I thank you for this bold and unashamed proclamation in your word of what you intend for marriage. I thank you for the wonder of it. Not only is it right, but it's gloriously good. It's joyful, or it should be. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who not only adhere and believe, but celebrate all the purpose and plan that you have for us. Lord, you came and died for us, not so you could control us, but so you could show us how to live in life and how to point others towards the life that we find in you. But Lord, I just want to particularly pray for anyone in this room, in any sort of bondage, in any sort of lifestyle that is outside your intention. Lord, I want to pray for a passion for singles to hang in there for those who desire to be married, Lord, that you would bring along a spouse. And that married people, we would pray and uphold the single people. That we'd pray it's a good thing for them to desire this union of marriage. And we want to pray and pray and pray until you provide them what you desire in their lives. Pray for those who are married, Lord. I pray that you'd strengthen our marriages. Pray for all of us that our marriages would be a witness to your glorious grace. I pray, Lord, particularly for those whose experience of marriage, even within the church, has been anything but. I thank you that you are a God who can redeem, who can restore, who can work all things together for good. So just come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Move upon our hearts and do all that you need to do this morning. We pray. May we stand with love always against whatever tide might come against us. For your glory, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.